Well, hello, everyone. Alex Sobel, co-founder Millennium, back at you for a very exciting podcast session. I think by now you guys know that when I jump on the podcast, I better be I better be bringing someone really good because I seem to take up all the ones that are the most exciting. My team, not that everybody we don't interview doesn't have something great to say, but some of the very special people I like to jump in, the more, the more fascinating people. That's no different for today. Gary Nessner is here. He's going to be the keynote presenter for you guys, newly announced. Um, you'll start to see it on all of our digital properties at the in-person, yes, in-person transformational CISO Assembly, November 2nd to the 3rd, Four Seasons, Denver. A lot of you guys that are listening to this are already signed up for it. So Gary, um, if you don't know who he is, you'll know, you might not know him by name, but you may know him by background. Um, just quickly before we get into the interview, which I've been really excited for for some time, Gary's a former FBI negotiator and author. Uh, to give you some background on him, he has retired from the FBI in 2003. He had a 30-year career there as an investigator, instructor, and negotiator. A huge focus of his career was directed toward investigating Middle East hijackings in which American citizens were victimized. In addition, he was an FBI hostage negotiator for 23 of his 30-year career, retiring as the chief of the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit Critical Incident Response Group, the first person to hold that position. In that capacity, Gary was heavily involved in numerous crisis incidents covering prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, religious zealot sieges, terrorist embassy takeovers, airplane hijackings, and over 120 overseas kidnapping cases involving American citizens. Following his retirement from the FBI, Gary uh, became the senior vice president with Control Risks, an international risk consultancy assisting clients in managing overseas kidnap incidents. And he continues to this day to consult independently and speaks at law enforcement conferences and corporate gatherings around the world. Now, Gary, if you weren't familiar with his name, um, is very well known to the general public outside of kind of the law enforcement world for his work as the head negotiator in the Waco situation that took place in 1993, which if you haven't seen the miniseries, um, a lot of which was inspired by Gary's book, Stalling for Time, I highly recommend you see it because I saw it when it came out and it was impossible to not watch every episode in one or two nights. It was amazing. And I'm not just saying that because Gary's here. It was one of the best miniseries I've ever seen. The acting alone was, was worth watching it. So a lot of people know Gary in the general public from just maybe his work with or inside Waco. But like with every podcast that I do, before we talk about some of the Waco stuff, I want to get into more kind of how Gary became Gary, where his passion for law enforcement came from, how he got to the FBI, where he's from. And then we'll get to some of the questions that I'm sure you would want me maybe to ask you. But anyway, with no further ado, Gary, welcome to the Millennium Live podcast series. We're pumped to have you. And thanks for doing the keynote in November. Thanks, Alex. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And I'll look forward to the November event. So Gary, let's start with early years. So I know right now you're a resident in Virginia, where it seems you spent a lot of your life when you were working uh, for the FBI. It was kind of home base for you. But as I understand, you grew up in Atlantic Beach, Florida. If, if, if you can uh, kind of give our listeners an idea of the area you grew up in, what your early years were like, what your parents did, if you had any siblings, what, you know, kind of the first 10 to 15 years of your life looked like. Well, that's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's nothing um, extraordinary. My, my parents were both from New Jersey and, you know, got married right after World War II. My dad worked for a Prudential Insurance Company, and they, uh, in 1953, decided to open up a second office in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, my dad uh, was transferred down to Jacksonville, and instead of living the 18 miles in town, he decided to get a house out at the beaches, which is uh, where I grew up, Atlantic Beach. And I grew up a couple blocks from the ocean. I had a pretty much an idyllic childhood. I mean, we could walk to the ocean and, you know, back in the day where, where parents didn't see you all day long, uh, you know, in the summer or on the weekends, but uh, there were woods to play nearby, I had great friends. It was a, a nice um, middle-class, uh, you know, suburb to, to live in. And, uh, you know, it's, it's since become 
pretty well gentrified because of the cost of houses there close to the ocean. But it was a great place to be raised. And, you know, there was a lot of stability. The kids I went to grammar school with, I went to high school with, and and um, still still go back for high school reunions and have maintained good friendships with a lot of those folks. Uh, so that's it. And, um, you know, I tell a sort of funny story. It would be hard for people to understand today. But when I was a young kid, uh, the big thing we watched on TV amongst the very narrow selection was the Mickey Mouse Club after school every day. <laughs> and it was kind of like a kid's variety show, you know, with some cartoons and and then they'd have, you know, uh, films of the Hardy Boys or Daniel Boone or whatever, you know, and that was kind of the, the thing that you watched. And um, they had an episode where the host went to FBI headquarters in Washington and actually interviewed Jagger Hoover. And, oh, wow. and Hoover, and I was about eight years old, I suppose. I, in my book, I said later, but I, I, I later learned it was younger than I thought. And Hoover talked about, you know, chasing spies and bank robbers and gangsters and you know all that kind this, of this was sorry this was around how old you said i was uh i was eight years old so okay. um, we moved to florida when i was two so i was essentially raised in florida but but yeah so i was born in in, in the 50s you know so it was uh, pretty young in my life and and i was really intrigued for whatever reason um by this story about the fbi and my mom came home from work that day and i was telling her all about it and she was a good mom and went out and bought me one one of these junior G-man kids books or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> and that pretty much uh, locked me in, you know, and for whatever reason, that's always the only thing I wanted to be. Um, in college, I got a teacher's degree as a backup, um, but I always wanted to get in the FBI. It just seemed like a prestigious, challenging, exciting, and interesting job to me. And it was all those things and more. Was there, was there anything that ever came in between the time you were eight to the time you went to college that you thought may have steered you away from going to the FBI or was it FBI or bust? You know, it was kind of all, all my eggs in one basket, really. Again, I always liked teaching and, you know, I was, I, I guess, uh, perceptive enough back then to know that I wasn't necessarily going to get in the FBI. So I needed to have a backup plan. So as I mentioned, I, I got a teacher certificate and had I not gotten in the FBI, I probably would have worked my whole career as, as a high school teacher and, and been retired at this point regardless. So yeah, it's just serendipity, I suppose. And I saw, so you graduated undergrad Florida Southern in 1972. Mm. And shortly thereafter, you started in the FBI. Yeah, I was too young, 20, 21. Uh, I was too young to be an FBI agent. You had to be 23. So I had a, an opportunity to start as a teacher and I did substitute teaching for a period of time, but I was uh, convinced to start as a support employee in the FBI. And so I did that for several years before. Where, where was that? Well, I started in Washington, went up there for a year and met my wife, who was an FBI stenographer. And uh, at that time, my dad was having some medical issues. So I transferred back to Jacksonville to be closer to home. And, uh, and spent a couple of years there before I got a uh, slot in the FBI agents training school. And, you know, that was kind of the start of my, uh, of my career as an FBI agent. So generally, I think even myself, who's kind of a, I consider myself somewhat of a political history junkie, understands that the FBI has very specific mission in general, but there's a lot of obvious roles and departments or maybe areas in the FBI that you can go to. So I'm curious that when you got to the FBI and in your early years, what area of the FBI were you working in first and what kind of work were you doing? Yeah, my, my first assignment as an agent was um, Columbia, South Carolina. And um, my dream came true yet again because I was put on a fugitive squad, mm -hmm. which meant all day long we went and arrested bad guys. And uh, to me, it was just thrilling and exciting and uh, there's a little bit of you know inherent risk and danger to it. But I found it really exciting and interesting work to do. Today, the FBI does less and less than that. And the Marshal Service, you know, has sort of taken over most of the fugitive work, but it was quite a big thing back then for the FBI. And uh, so that's what I did. And, you know, it learned, I learned a lot about arresting people and keeping myself safe and working with local police and, uh, you know, arraigning people in court, testifying and, um, you know, work some bank robberies. And there's a small enough office that if anything happened to kidnapping a uh, you know, robbery, any any kind of area that came under federal jurisdiction, we got involved. So it was a good area to learn, you know, a, a pretty broad range of skill sets for my, my subsequent career. If you were to say in the 1970s, 
your first eight year period that when you were working in the FBI, some of the biggest immediate threats to the country. What would you say they were in the 70s? You know, it's hard to say. I, 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 I just didn't view anything in that grand scale. I mean, I think crime was a pretty persistent issue. We certainly had organized crime. We had uh, political corruption. We had some other areas, but I didn't feel as though, as I do today, that there's some major factors that are challenging America and our democracy. Back then, I didn't have that feeling. Maybe I was that's kind of why that's kind of why I asked. I, I was curious with some of your experience if there was any foreshadowing because you've spent, I mean, you out of anybody that I could think of to ask these questions to, Gary, you spent your career, a lot of it working with or trying to quell right-wing militias, dealing with what we what we named as religious zealot sieges and stuff that I think now people in my generation in their, in their late 30s, never really thought of as things to be really worried about. But now the leader of the FBI now, Christopher Ray, I know he has talked pretty much every year that he's been leading the FBI. He's talked a lot about how, from his perspective and from his data, the number one threat is the rise of white supremacy groups, right-wing militia groups. That's the biggest issue that's facing the country. I would argue, couple that in with a lot of misinformation and disinformation that, that makes for a really big issue. Because I find that when people that politically are... I guess you would say to the far right on a lot of these issues, you know, we'll dispute that and say that it's not real and all that type of stuff, which is something else I want to talk to you about when it comes to disinformation. I just curious in the seventies and eighties, even before the Waco stuff happened, if you had seen any seeds being planted for what we're seeing today. There were a few incidents in the eighties where we confronted some, what we would call today, you know, right-wing anti-government groups. But it, it wasn't at a point then that you would consider it, you know, one of the major issues facing the FBI. You know, my, in addition to my investigative work, which ended up in the 80s, mostly being directed towards Middle East hijackings, mm. but I was also a part-time hostage negotiator. So I would be, you know, I'd have a foot in the domestic door and a foot in the international door. And, you know, I was doing international kidnappings back when, uh, kidnappings and hijackings back when probably there's only a handful of FBI agents that ever traveled abroad, you know, for other than executive conferences or, you know, legal attaches that we have posted at certain embassies. But today it's a major part of what the FBI does and, and probably rightfully so. But, but no, back then, I don't think there was any foreboding of a, of a domestic threat as, as it evolved. Now, you know, as we began to deal with some prison riots, we were seeing that some of the inmate populations were very radicalized, skinheads, or, you know, some of them, there, there's often a cross between their political and their religious ideology. And, you know, it goes back to a point I think you were beginning to touch on before, a lot of this is, is coincided with essentially a right-wing propaganda effort that's been quite effective in convincing people they need to be angry and their victims and mm. things are happening that are far worse than reality would suggest in my experience. But that's a big problem. I've never in, in my life seen the country so divided. And I think there's people that are purposely promoting that and capitalizing on it. Most of the people I know, even people that have differing political views from me as people that know each other, we're, we generally either avoid those topics or we sit down and we find some mutual ground where we can agree to. But if all you do is rail at the television screen and, and yeah. think, think that everybody disagrees with you, hates America, then, you know, it's kind of what Hitler did to the Jews. You know, you've got to demonize your opposition. And, sure. um, and it's just sad to see that happening in the country. I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's going to take a while to work through this. Yeah, I agree. And it definitely is something that is worrisome. I know not just for me, but for a lot of people. I wanted to ask you a question because I remember after I watched the series on Wicco, I got interested in more of these kind of anti-government groups and the history of them. And like, I remember one, I think if I get this wrong, the name, forgive me, Ruby Ridge, was it called? Well, that actually happened before Waco. That, that was no, that was before Waco, right? I, I, I wanted. Um, did you have any involvement in that? No, I was. Uh, that was six months before Waco, and um, I was out of the country at the time, so I was one of only two full-time negotiators in the FBI by that time. This was ninety-two. That was that Idaho. It was Idaho. It was Northern sure. Idaho, and a fellow named Randy Weaver. And Randy Weaver had, you know, sort of um, lived a recluse sort of life and but but he had rubbed elbows with some right-wing people and the alcohol tobacco and firearms had a undercover agent sell him a weapon that he or buy a weapon from weaver that he had 
illegally modified. And, you know, I, I think they were using that as leverage to get him to be an informant on, on the right wing militias. And Weaver refused and secluded himself up in this little mountaintop of Ruby Ridge. And uh, eventually the marshals went to arrest him. There was a shootout. A marshal was killed. Uh, Weaver's son, Sammy, was killed. And so the FBI was brought in to resolve the situation. And is, again, is Weaver still alive? He just died about two weeks ago, believe it or not. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, so the FBI moved forward and surrounded the cabin. And there was a another shooting incident where people on the FBI side said they were aiming rifles at a helicopter. There's people on the other side said, no, that didn't happen. Regardless, an FBI sniper took a shot at Weaver and wounded him and uh, wounded his a friend of his that was staying with him. But a bullet passed through his friend and through a front door and behind that door was Weaver's wife, Vicky, and she was killed oh. while holding their baby. It was just a tragic, tragic event. And, you know, no, no question about it. the FBI leadership at the scene had grossly mismanaged it and uh, really didn't effectively use negotiations before they sort of encroached with tactical initiatives. But even despite all that carnage, uh, it was negotiated out eight days later through my partner and other negotiators in the FBI. and. Uh, you know, leveraging some intermediaries, a fellow named Bo Greitz, preventing further loss of life, but a terrible situation. And it it did, not so much nationally at the time, but certainly in that part of the country, it became a bit of a rallying cry for anti-government folks as representing, you know, the government that's overreaching and being oppressive. And, you know, unfortunately, they had some uh, ammunition to, to hold that point. And uh, I didn't mean ammunition literally, uh, but- No, I know you, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's um, that's kind of what happened there. And then, you know, six months later, we have Waco, which is a completely different kind of situation. But again, the ATF was going to execute an arrest warrant and a search warrant, and the Davidians found out they were coming, and there was a, a big shootout, and mm-hmm. uh, two, uh, excuse me, four ATF agents killed, seventeen wounded, five or six Davidians killed, and. Again, the FBI comes in to resolve it. And, you know, if you've seen the show or read my book, you, you have a little more understanding of that. But we we did get 35 people out the first half when I was leading the negotiation team. And the FBI rotated me out and decided to take a more aggressive approach at the midpoint. And, uh, of course, it it only caused the, way, uh, the videos to entrench and uh, resist. And no one else came out. And eventually they put in tear gas and, you know, yeah. and, uh, started the fires and killed themselves. It was just a... Terrible tragedy. Yeah, it's it's a gut wrenching part of the series. I want to when we start talking now a little bit more about Waco. I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, the accuracy of what of what you remember because some interviews I've seen with you, I get the sense that you feel like the the team that put it together did a really good job of. Yeah, I, I think the Dowdle brothers, who are the producer director. In fact, we we just finished. They just finished filming season two. There's going to be another season coming out. There's another season of Waco? It's called Waco, The Aftermath. It'll be out. Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't know that. That's coming out in February? Yeah, on the Paramount Network. And Michael Shannon's playing me again. But um, That last episode of the memory I have of it is when the the kids are kind of trapped or people can't get out. It's a tough one. It's gut-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching. It's hard to watch. uh, You know, for the most part, I, I I think the Dowdles referring to the first season here again, the six-part miniseries, I think they captured the spirit of the situation. They relied on two books. They relied on my book for the FBI perspective looking in, and they relied on the book of David Thibodeau, one of the survivors. I believe my book, which it does covers much more than Waco, but the chapter on Waco, I think is is very open and candid about both the good things we did as FBI negotiators and the decision-making mistakes that were made that in my view did contribute to the outcome. However, you know, I, I strongly disagree with some of the things in, in David's book, David Thibodeau, who he's become a friend. We get along with him fine, but I think he has a very limited perspective of what David Koresh was thinking and doing and how he was manipulating his followers. But the production overall uh, captured the tenor. There was a few issues I lobbied uh, for changes on and you know once you find out when you sell your book rights you have you have input but you don't have inf- uh, control and uh, some of the things they changed and some of the things they didn't and uh, it's a it's a dramatic series it's it's not a historical documentary you know so a lot of that has to come into play so you know it is it is what it is but overall I think people watching that would would get a good sense of, of what we were going through out there 
So when you were at the FBI before you heard about Waco, if I guess if you were in the country for Ruby Ridge, you would have been at Ruby Ridge? Probably, yeah. So is it safe to say that anything related to a scenario like Waco, Ruby Ridge, Oklahoma City, you're getting called for those situations? Yeah, if, if there's a, a negotiation element involved or potential for a negotiation element, then you know I or my partner at that time would have deployed, or both of us, as well as our field negotiators, but we would have gone out and led the negotiation team effort. Some years after Waco, they greatly expanded the unit, uh, making it the crisis negotiation unit. It used to be a subunit of a crisis management team. And then I became the first unit chief. And then we had far more of a formalized uh, response responsibility. So yeah, I, I mean, but yeah, one of us would have, would have been there. If I had not been in the country, I probably would have been at Ruby Ridge. And in fact, I was I was actually celebrating an anniversary in Bermuda with my wife. And um, hmm. my boss called me up and said, hey, stay where you are now, but get ready to go out there. And this is for Waco. No, it's for Ruby Ridge. If it continues after a certain period of time, you'll go back out there. Now with Waco, I just got the call, go, went out there. At the time of Waco, who were you reporting to in the FBI? Well, I was at the time of Waco, as I mentioned, we were a part of the crisis management unit at the FBI Academy, which is not an instruction. It provided instruction, it provided operations, and it provided research. So, you know, it, it was sort of a hodgepodge of responsibilities. It was physically housed at the FBI Academy in Quantico. So I had a, a unit chief, a boss there that had all these different components under his uh, leadership. And uh, that's who I reported to. And where were you when you got the call for Waco? Well, I was out with my family um, at a hardware store and uh, figuring out some things. And my kids were pretty young then. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we didn't even have cell phones then. It was just a beeper. So I went to a phone booth next to the hardware store and called up my boss. And he said, gave me a thumbnail sketch of what was going on. I said, get your stuff, go to the airport and fly out to uh, uh, Waco, Texas in an FBI plane. And that's what I did. Did you know before you got that phone call anything about David Koresh or this Branch Davidian group? Never heard of him before then. No, not a word. Okay. You, you, you get to Waco and is the proximity of where you were in relationship to the compound, the way it looks in the show, does that look about right from the proximity? Were you closer or farther away? We were much further away. The, the tactical teams, the containment, the perimeter, they had mobile homes, parked a safe distance away, but that was sort of where they were set up and operating. The main command post where the leadership was and, and the negotiation team was, you know, I don't know, three, four, five miles away at a former U.S. Uh, military Air Force base that was now the Texas Technical Community College. That was the space where we set up and, and managed the incident. And I don't remember in the show if this happened, so forgive me, but did you ever get face-to-face -face with Koresh? Never did. I spoke to him on the phone the first night for, I don't know, 10, 12 hours. And then my team began to arrive, which my team of the most experienced negotiators that we were flying in from around the country. My job as the leader is not to be the guy on the phone at that, at this point in my career, my job is to basically make sure that, you know, I'm in charge of the negotiation strategy and coordinating be the, the team. quarterback, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or quarterback slash coach whatever you want to say. Was that the only time you had talked to Koresh or did you talk to him again after that first night? No, it's the only time I spoke with him. And you were, sorry, you said 10 to 12 hours total or were you on the phone with him straight through? No, no, just uh, the first night when I got there, you know, this had begun what I think what in, earlier in the day before lunch. And then by the time I got there, the people who had been performing as negotiators um, were absolutely exhausted. And yeah. knowing my team was not inbound yet, but they said, can you, can you talk to him now for the rest of the night so we can go crash? And of course, yeah, I did. So that's what, how I ended up doing that. At this point in my career, I probably wouldn't have been on the phone so much myself as, as directing all the negotiation strategy. Did you find that, well, I can imagine in your role, when you're talking to somebody like a David Koresh, you're trying in your best way you can to figure out kind of what kind of person you're dealing with. Sure. I mean, David Koresh was, and I get asked this a lot. I mean, I was actually optimistic the first evening because he had been wounded pretty seriously, yet he was fairly cogent. He was not so much angry at the government writ large or the FBI. He was very angry at ATF, as, as you might imagine. Yeah. Why did they come in and do this? You know, they could have arrested me when I was jogging or downtown or whatever. You know, and at that point in time, my job is not to defend what ATF did, but to merely say, okay, the FBI is here now and, and 
you know, we want to make sure that everybody comes out alive and that we can make sure that you get your day in court, tell your side of the story. And, you know, that's, that's all we do. We don't promise that things are going to be hunky dory and there, there's not serious issues afoot. That was basically the, the line I took when I spoke with him through the night. I was fairly optimistic because, again, when I arrived, a ceasefire had been put in place. Some children had been released, and he's willing to talk to us on the phone. Had anybody died inside yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were, uh, I, I, I can't remember the accurate number. There were five, maybe six people dead inside from, okay. from the shootout. And he was shot, too. He was wounded, yeah. He had a bullet that creased right behind, I believe it was his left uh, thumb. Uh, right at the wrist, so you could see a big notch in the skin out, and then it went in and out of of the soft, fleshy part of his side above his hip. But you can imagine, you know, he even sent us a video showing us his wounds and, his, and the bullet hole, how painful that that no doubt was. And it caused him a great deal of discomfort, you know, in the early days of our communication. But it, uh, we sent him in some sutures, and, you know, it eventually got to a point where it did not seem to affect him as much. So you were optimistic after spending so much time with him on the phone that first night that you could, this could be resolved in a mostly safe way. I was, you know, and I remember when I got on the phone, there were ATF agents sitting around me and I told them, I said, listen, um, <laughs> my job is not to defend what you did. My, my job is not to bolster your arguments. My job is to convince this man that we are now a different agency that's come in and we will handle this accordingly you know, based on the evidence and fair collection and everybody gets a chance to say what they need to say. And, and, and so if you hear me take those stances, it's not because I'm denigrating ATF. It's just I'm trying to create a relationship of trust with this man. And they seem to understand, but, you know, I'm sure a lot of them wanted to, you know, get back at him in some way. But, yeah, I, for, I forgot the point I was going to make there. But I, I felt as though the fact that we were now well into to uh, many hours of talking with him and no additional shots had been fired. There was a ceasefire and the wounded ATF agents were removed and the situation had stabilized to some extent. I, you know, I was optimistic that we could get it resolved. He did not in the early days appear to me to be suicidal, although we were concerned about that from day one and often asked them, are, are you folks thinking of killing yourselves? And of course he always said no, pretty, pretty adamantly. And while that gave us some comfort, we didn't ever totally believe that because his whole philosophy was about the end times and sure. the forces of evil, the government comes and kills the righteous and the righteous come back and, you know, all that stuff from the book of Revelation that, that were really the, the bread and butter of his uh, theology and uh, which he had preached to his, his followers for so long. Does it matter when you're evaluating the best you can, someone like David Koresh, whether or not you guys think that he buys his own BS or whether or not he knows that he's, excuse my language, full of shit. Because the reason I ask this is because cults or groups like this, I'm always curious whether or not they know or they, they're, they're acting. Or when you deal with a guy like David Koresh, does it even matter if you're able to figure out in your own mind or making a, a, a solid opinion of whether or not he thinks he is who he is? I mean, that's a really good question, and it's a complex one, and I'm not sure that we ever felt we, we totally understood that. My, my own sense is that the attributes, the behaviors that Koresh was primarily manifesting were those of an antisocial personality. He was a manipulator, narcissistic, controlling. Did he really believe he was a son of God? Mm, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not so sure that he did. There was a few comments he made throughout that convinced me that he knew he was. And I'll just give you one of those examples of many. One night he asked the evening negotiation team what they were eating. And they said, well, we go to Whataburger. That's a hamburger chain. It was the only place it was open late at night. And Koresh, in almost a humorous way, says, well, if it turns out that I am the son of God, the world's going to find out about the meat at Whataburger. Now, it just, you know, it just really doesn't sound like somebody yeah. that believes his own divinity. You know, I, I think we David Koresh grew up with um, learning disabilities, a uh, very, very troubled uh, background, single mom, you know, he had him very early, all kinds of challenging issues, but somewhere he, he learned the power of being able to memorize large parts of the Bible and to weave together his, his interpretation of the things that he read. And I think he relished that power and that control, and he didn't want to give it up. I think that was the primary 
factor in, in his behavior. You know, there are those critics, oh, the FBI never, you know, never really took his ideology serious and they should have brought in us religious scholars and we could have convinced him he was wrong. And of course, I, I would say without any hesitation, that's such nonsense. You don't ever <laughs> jump in someone's re religious views. But people have strongly held views like that. You try to steer the conversation away from those areas for which there is no room for flexibility or sure. for you know, questioning. And, and that's the case with him. All the kids we got out, all the people we got out, the 35, none of that was really why we were talking about religious uh, doctrine. So, you know, if you look at his personality as a piece of pie, there's probably a, I don't know what percentage, there's a sliver that represents his extreme religious ideology. And you want to spend your time in all the other parts of the pie. Sure. Because when sure. you're in that one part of the pie, you know, he'll, he'll engage you till the cows come home but you're not going to get anything accomplished. You know, he's just going to go into his preacher mode and pontificate and uh, uh, puff out his knowledge about the Bible. And, you know, you're keeping him on the phone, but you're really not getting anywhere. So we tried to steer him away from those things respectfully. We didn't make fun of his religion or, or say he was wrong. We just said, you know, I, this is very serious for you. And you, you sound like you know so much about this and we don't pretend that we do. We don't, but let's talk about, you know, this other thing. How can we get this, this young kid out that, 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 you know, we'd like to see come out. And you talked about letting out today. So we would just try to steer it back to here and now. Was it surprising how much time he gave you and your colleagues on the phone over the course of the time period that you guys were there? It was, it was hundreds and hundreds of hours. And uh, that's not, that's not typically normal though, right? Well, there was nothing normal about this situation yeah. uh, in any respect, but I think my main word to characterize David Koresh was ambivalent. I mean, I think there is a part of him that he just didn't know how to get out of this situation. And he was seeking some kind of reasonable solution. And then there was another part of him that just didn't want to give up this exclusive kingdom he had. You know, People worshiping him. Absolutely. And controlling every facet of their lives, controlling their money, having sex with their wives, you know, doing all the things that he was able to get away with in there. And ultimately, it might have been a bridge too far for him to come out. Now, I personally believe we could have gotten a lot more people out absent some countervailing tactical measures that were undertaken. But, but uh, whether we ever could have got Koresh out or not is debatable. I think there's a chance we could have, but I don't know. I'm curious because I know you, were, you weren't there for the whole time. I think I saw something you were there just for the first 25 days. I don't remember seeing why that was. Well, there were... In a situation like this, there's an on-scene commander, and, and it's like a general in the FBI, and that's the person who runs the incident. And this was the special agent in charge of the San Antonio office, which covers the Waco area. So he's the, the battlefield commander and makes all the ultimate decision. But under him are two people. There's the tactical team leader, and there's the chief negotiator. So I was one of those three people. But on the other side was a very strong-willed tactical team commander, head of the FBI's hostage rescue team, which is a sort of a super SWAT counterterrorism team. And his approach was quite different from mine. He felt as though we could tighten the pressure and compel them to come out, to slowly increase the things that we did to force them out. As a negotiator, I knew then, and I know now that's counterproductive. You know, the harder you push, the more likely it is that you're to get you get resistance. That's what we call the paradox of power. So we clashed almost a daily basis on the best way forward. And I think uh, the on-scene commander approved of both of our strategies, not fully appreciating the fact, despite me telling him that we were sending mixed signals. You know, you, you're going to talk to the nice man on the phone, or you're going to pay attention to the guy that's just crushed your car out in front of your house. Sure. You know, you know, words speak a thousand words, as it were. I mean, a picture speaks a thousand words. So I was an impediment to that approach. And I had some successes and I had some disappointments in that battle. But there was uh, someone at headquarters that I think listened to the other side of the argument and decided this was taking too long. It was costing a million dollars a day, enormous public pressure on the FBI to get it resolved. And so they decided, well, we're going to bring in another negotiator and someone they felt would be more receptive to a, a tough tactical approach, a guy that used to be in our unit. And they did. 
and uh, no one else came out uh, after I left, not a single person. So, so, you, so, so the guy that was the peer of yours ended up staying, the on-site commander came, or the on-site commander stayed. So in that type of situation, I'm curious, is the on-site commander the final authority, or does well, he, to, he or she have to report back to anybody in Washington? They do. They they keep Washington brief, but they have they have a lion's share of the authority because most decisions don't rise to the attorney general's level or the director. But I mean, on a daily basis, he was briefing, you know, FBI headquarters and, uh, you know, the director's office is briefing Janet Reno, who is the attorney general. And she was probably periodically uh, briefing the White House under Bill Clinton. So, I mean, there is a chain of command and people have to be bought into these things for ultimate decision making. But we, we, you know, I look at it, the FBI made an, a lot of changes after Waco. And the basic change we made was to go back to doing things the way we did before Waco, because sure. we, had a, we had a very successful track record of managing major sieges. And we were good. We were probably the best in the world at it. And other people copied what we did. But at Waco, we had a set of leadership that just departed from that. And, and got away with it. And it causes enormous. Do you problem. think, sorry, Gary, do you think that's because just human nature, people were getting frustrated, they were getting impatient, or did they feel that Koresh was bluffing or this was eventually going to happen? Like, why, why, why the impatience? Well, I think it was both. I, I think, I, I think it was their nature. Uh, and it's the nature of law enforcement. You see it in the military as well, is to take action, to be seen as doing something, to be decisive, mm-hmm. to go on the attack, as it were, to sit back and passively listen to someone that increasingly, as you listen to them, you have less and less respect for. And there's a tendency in law enforcement to want to spank him or punish him or bring him into custody, whatever you want to say. You know, as negotiators, we, we know that's, that's losing your own self-control. You know, if you're going to influence somebody else, David Koresh, first and foremost, you need to control your own emotions. But again, um, I think after a period of time, and this was seemingly dragging along, taking a long time, I feel as though they felt that he was manipulating us and was uh, jerking us around. But I throw this into literally dozens and dozens of situations I've worked, of, even of a much less notoriety, that the on-scene commander would say, this guy knows exactly what he's doing is manipulating us. And I would almost say, Perhaps he does, but my experience is these guys don't know how to get out of what they got into. Sure. This is more confusion and not knowing what to do and defaulting on doing nothing. That is, in my mind, far more likely than a cold, calculated effort to jerk us around. But that's how it's often taken by law enforcement decision makers. And that can be unfortunate if it drives bad decision making. Have you been back to Waco since? I went back to... um, 20 years later, they had a uh, Baylor University, which is there in Waco, had a 20-year symposium on Waco, looking back at it. Was that um, the first time you had been back? It is. Uh, and, and and I didn't go out to the compound, but... Is the it, compound still up? No, the compound burned down, but there is a, a, a chapel there, as I understand. And oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't, well, obviously, I, I meant is any piece of the compound up? I, I think, I don't know. I think they tore... The tower was up for a while, but I think they tore that down. Is there, is there anything there in replace of it? Or is it just kind of... I, no, I don't I don't think there is. But again, having not been there, I can't speak authoritatively. So the first time you went back was 20 years later. Yeah. And um, I mean, it was just no reason for, for me to go back unless I was going to go on vacation or something. <laughs> in Waco. Yeah, exactly. But, um, uh, you know, it's um, it was interesting. And my presentation at Baylor is, is on my website. Anybody can oh, watch wow. it. Very interesting thing. I was the only law enforcement person they invited to this conference. There was a lot of religious scholars and there was a lot of what you can tell from the audience were, you know, kind of anti-government folks. So I was kind of in the hot seat there for a while, but, uh, you know, and, and before I spoke, which was after lunch, I heard a lot of really inaccurate stuff. And I tried to correct it in my presentation to the extent I could, but I did appreciate Baylor having me come out, but I expected to see a little bit more a balanced uh, group of presenters. And getting up into the time period where the miniseries starts being filmed, how was that experience personally for you? Was it painful reliving all that stuff? Was it cathartic? What what was it like for you on a personal level? You know, I I don't, I don't think it was either one of those things. It was just Waco became such a, certainly far from the only interesting and 
significant event in, in my negotiation career, but honestly, the, the biggest and the most talked about, the most notorious. So, you know, as a negotiation instructor, every speech I've ever given, people ask me about it. So I was quite comfortable talking about it without it evoking any strong emotion. I also feel as though the advice I gave and the strategy that implemented and recommended, I stand by to this day. And had I not spoken up and tried to thwart some of the other uh, initiatives taken, then I think I probably would have had some guilt about the outcome. But I gave it my very best, as did my team. I had a great team of negotiators, and far from doing it on my own. So, you know, it's it's a sad, tragic event. But, you know, again, you kind of say, well, I, I gave it my all. You know, it's like uh, losing the Super Bowl, but having one of the best games of your life. You know, I mean, sure. you say, I, you know, our team moved the ball. We <laughs> made a lot of touchdowns. We, we did some really good things. And unfortunately, you know, they were ahead when the clock stopped. So it's the way it goes. So if we can. Well, I don't mean to trivialize that, by the way. Um, no, you know. no. I think, that's, I think that's well said. So taking it to modern day today, because as someone who pays attention to current events and, you know, politics and all that stuff, but, you know, it's always in your face, so it's hard not to pay attention to it. We are at a time period right now where the current FBI director, Christopher Wray, has said repeatedly that the most dangerous threat or threats facing America right now are the rise of radical white supremacist groups. I think he's touched upon the rise of right-wing anti-government style militia. And to me, this, this is, you know, this is pretty serious stuff. And the reason why I think it's pretty serious is because you're seeing a, for the first time in my life and people that are older than me saying for the first time in their lives, a not total condemnation from people in power where I think that's the scary part for me is that these, well, it sounds like these groups are growing more. And I, I would, I would assume it's partly because there's not a full sort of, like I said, condemnation from everybody, regardless of political stripe. So we're, we're at this moment right now where you have groups that are attacking the Capitol on January 6th, which everybody knows the committee's doing all that stuff. Now you have groups showing up to college campuses. You have groups in cities like in Boston. So it's here and it's growing and it's scary from your perspective, how do we get out of this? Well, I think, uh, to some extent with the ballot box. I mean, you're absolutely right. Your description of the growing concern that, that uh, decent people have with this movement, but it's being fueled by a propaganda machine. And, you know, in the past, both political parties could disagree on some pretty important points. You know, do you raise taxes, lower taxes? Do you spend sure. more on the military, less in the military? You know, how much entitlements? All this kind of stuff is you know, philosophically open for discussion and debate, and both sides have some inputs. But we have turned to a point, and and I I blame Fox News for an awful lot of this, and Donald Trump kind of, uh, and sure. some, some of your listeners won't like me saying that, but that's the way I see it. I think they have taken a step beyond saying these people disagree with us to saying these people hate America. They've demonized the left, and I'm not saying there's all great people on the left. I, I'm an independent, always have been. I don't subscribe to either party, but there is a, a hatred now. And we saw it on January 6th. The people that went up there, they were angry. They 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 felt victimized and, and they were out for, you know, doing doing harmful things to people because they didn't respect them. And 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 I just think that's so unfortunate. I mean, turning on your own vice president and uh uh, you know, going after Nancy Pelosi and some of the despicable things they did. It's just, it's just terrible. And you're right, the lack of total, immediate and total condemnation, you know, in one of the parties and its leadership is, is quite alarming. And it's going to encourage people to do more and more. Think back to Charlottesville, you know, Ugh. very fine people, you know, really, uh, you know, uh, no, <laughs> you know, th this is something we have to condemn and, uh, and, and go after. So, you know, politicians, uh, they put their finger up in the wind and they, they figure which, which way it's blowing and, and that's what they go with. And right now, if, if there's a certain segment of their constituency that, that supports this stuff, then they're reluctant to criticize it. And, you know, it takes courage and it takes a, a backbone that is uh, unfortunately all too uh, rare these days in, in the political realm. You know, there are some politicians that have risked a lot to criticize this. And, that's the way it should be. 
you know, it's interesting because whether it be the Branch Davidians or the people that showed up at the riots on January 6th, in a sense, I can't help but part of me feel bad for them because they these people that follow and worship a leader or a following, to me, and this is not my field, I'm not a psychologist, right? But just as someone who thinks he's an astute observer, you know, humans by nature want to belong to something. They want to be a part of something. And when I was watching this stuff on January 6th, I couldn't help but feel that like these people, if you really got to the bottom of why they were so upset, they they probably didn't even really know. No. And it was more of sense of community and a sense of belonging and in some sense doing something really good or, or turning a because they had believed the election to be stolen, righting a wrong. And I think the people, whether it be David Koresh or Donald Trump or any of these other people, that sense of, there seems to be a lacking of sense of responsibility that even though people are individuals and they can make their own minds up for themselves, but with the kind of influence, you know, people had said to me, well, they thought the election was stolen. And I always said, well, why did they think the election was stolen? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes it so particularly egregious, that being the central issue that sparked yeah. the debate. You know, what, 60 court cases. They they won one case that had to do with how long you can extend absentee ballots. Yeah. Every other case got thrown out, and it got thrown out because the judges said to the Trump attorneys, do you have any evidence of this? And they all said, well, no, but we think it happened. No. And then they said, well, get out of my court. You know, when I was an FBI agent, I, I, I could know somebody was a crook but I couldn't just convict him on that. I had to prove it. You know, we had to develop an investigation to prove that this person was violating the law. You can't just make a contention. So that's why I say the, the, the propaganda element where so many people were convinced to believe a big lie, totally unsupported by facts is what scares me the most. And, you know, and I know I don't have a clear answer for it, but, you know, you see a lot of it with men my age, a little bit younger, you know, they're, they're scared, Alex. They see a changing America. They see uh, different colors, different religions, different yeah. sexual orientation, women playing uh, different roles than they did uh, historically. And for whatever reason, these men are scared and frightened. Most of these guys on January 6th, they're, you know, I, I think I can say without uh, being too negative, they're underachievers in life. And, yeah. uh, you know, these, these aren't highly, for the most part, there are some, of course, but they're not particularly uh, successful people. And this is their, like you said earlier, this is sort of something they can rally around and give them a cause and a sense of being part of something. And it's, it's just tragic because there are those who are purposely manipulating that to their advantage. And, you know, this is the time where we need politicians to come out strong and say, stop this. This did not get stolen this election it's a big lie behave like an adult here move on i mean yeah. you think about the, the peaceful transfer of power is essentially the the cornerstone of american democracy i mean yeah. you know it, it really is and and then that was so close to being lost uh, it, it's it's quite frightening to me yeah me too you know i always felt that i wasn't surprised that there was going to be a backlash if trump had lost from supporters of his, because think about how addicting, like if you're, if you were someone who supported Trump and went to his rallies, not just, you know, voted for him because you didn't really like the Democrat and, you know, you justified why voting for him. But if you were someone who went to his rallies and you're someone who must not have a lot to do, if you had hours and hours in a day to wait in line and then go listen, here comes a guy who tells you that for all of the mistakes you've made, right, all of the things you've done wrong, it's not your fault. And that's addicting. And I think that the fear of Trump losing, think about for the first time in their lives, they have this, what seemed to be some wealthy guy popping into their town from New York. He must be smart because he has money. And this whole time we're blaming ourselves and our parents are blaming us for bad decisions we've made in life. And he's telling us it's not our fault. That's addicting to listen to. And then I, when, sure. when that I'm goes sure. away, when that goes away, people get crazy. But I think it's funny, I live in a rural part of Virginia, and, and uh, there's a lot of government assistance here and a lot of poverty in this general area, and it's mostly rural white Americans. Yeah. And uh, it's so funny that they support a guy that, in my opinion, really doesn't give a rat's you-know-what about them no. and has done nothing policy-wise to help them. But they like the message on the social issues, and 
makes them you know, feel good. They've been told, you know, the nasty old Dems are going to come take your gun and they're going to burn your Bibles and they're not going to let you pray and they're going to make your children gay and, and you know, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And as outlandish as it is, it has a following. And I'll be very honest with you. I have a lot of retired FBI friends and I would say a majority of them have joined the team over there and uh, the Trump yeah. team. And these are educated, experienced investigators that should be able to quickly identify a fraud when they see one and a phone. Yeah. So it's it that just shows you the depth of of the ability to sway people, you know. And and it should be no surprise that someone with less sophisticated qualities. Yeah, it's a good way. Them. Yeah, that's a good point. That if trained FBI people can't. Yeah, and I'm sure half your listeners now are probably going to turn this thing off. And now oh, this guy's that's all right. The lefty economy right. or whatever, but you know. We got a little, we got to get a little controversial. It just goes back to negotiation. You know, what we need, you know, regardless of the party you're on, you know, there's good sides on, there's good arguments on both sides of any, of, of any issue and take the time to listen and learn and be respectful. Doesn't mean you have to agree. You know, you can continue to disagree, but have a respectful conversation and you might learn something and that person will give you an opportunity to express your views. And you know, expand your horizon. If you only get news from one source that, you know, spews venom, then that's what you're going to believe, you know, and that's to both sides. So, you know, I, I just think people have got to be a little bit more discriminating and, and gather a broader amount of information and facts to, to base their opinions on. And we don't anymore. We just really don't. It's yeah, quite sad. Very. Yeah. Well, on that note, Gary, thank you so much. I'm excited to meet you in November in Denver. Again, for all of our listeners, November 2nd to the 3rd, on the night of November 2nd, Gary will be kicking off the Transformational CISO Assembly, which is going to be amazing. The registrants are ready. The lineup is outstanding. So we're excited for that. Gary, thanks for the talk today. Really enlightening. You've been someone I've been fascinated by for the last few years. We got a second. I didn't know this. Waco's going to have a second uh, season coming out next year, I think February. And And, and Netflix is also, I'm working on a, very comprehensive three-part documentary about Waco that I think will probably be far and away the most accurately detailed account of, of all aspects of this. And that will be coming awesome. out uh, probably uh, in the same time frame, probably February, which will be the 30th anniversary of, of Waco. So both of those productions, both the Paramount series uh, for the second season and the Netflix documentary will both be out of, uh, at that time. I'll be watching, that's for sure. Um, and don't forget, if you guys haven't uh, ever read Gary's book, it's really good, Stalling for Time. I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. I got to pick it back up again because I forgot pieces of it. Gary, thanks for being here. Yeah, um, it's my pleasure. Yeah, and we look forward to seeing you um, in November and getting you back on the podcast uh, one day soon. Thank you so much. Sounds great. Take care. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. In the meantime, subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.